You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 73. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul, and I am in addiction recovery. This is the week that I turned 42 months old in sobriety and recovery. Very happy to be able to click past that little number as I get ever closer to uh, just tomorrow. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, when this whole thing first started, there was such an excitement around these soberversaries. And I still care about them and I still like them being acknowledged. And, and I still like making that a day where, you know, I take a step back and realize that the life I'm creating for myself is, uh, you know, much better and larger and, and just so much fuller than I could ever have imagined. Then, you know, at the same time, I realized it's like, man, this is just, it's all, you know, really start looking at it on a 5, 10, 15, 20 year, 30 year, 50 year kind of range. It's like, wow, this is just the beginning. Like if you're just three and a half years old, you just made it through the terrible twos. And now you're asking why all the time if you're a child. So there's a lot more growth to come. And I can't wait for all of it. And speaking of growth, tomorrow night... We launched Sober Sessions with Sue Mandel, and we're going to be doing that. So if it's something that you're interested in, you can jump over to the From Sobriety to Recovery group, which was just started. Um, it's a private group, so you have to ask permission to get into it, but you can certainly find it. It is findable. I didn't hide it. So From Sobriety to Recovery, it's a Facebook group. You can always go to the From Sobriety to Recovery page, which is you know, more like a business page, and that's definitely going to have the link for it over there. And you can go to the From Sobriety to Recovery Instagram account, and you can find the link for the group there. I'm just now realizing I haven't set that up yet. So cool. That's something else I get to do whenever I hang up with the headset. So I've been reading Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. And I've already, well, it's Audible. So I listened through the Audible. I was blown away by it. And I listened to it while I was in Oklahoma driving back and forth from Broken Bow to Tulsa to Oklahoma City and loved what I heard. So I went out and got a PDF version of it, and now I'm listening to the PDF. I'm listening to the Audible as I sit there and follow along with the PDF as I sit there with the Trello board open, making detailed notes of the entire book because there's so much about shame and vulnerability and disengagement and just these amazing topics that just fit so well into the sobriety and recovery community that, I mean, I just feel supercharged even talking about it. Uh, one of the listeners recently sent me a DM saying, showing that he had gotten the book and uh, had even expressed you know, some, at first, apprehension about it because of what she's talking about with vulnerability and shame and, and these kind of things aren't generally something that society really likes to dive into as much as it honestly should. And I really do believe that that need for connection that comes from being a child into your teenage years is one of the drivers for addiction, as well as I think shame and disengagement and uh, comparison crisis and things of that nature add to it, right? Like there's, there's no one moment in your life that you can go back and say, well, that's the day that as a child or a teenager, I decided that I was going to get into heroin or meth or Coke or LSD or amphetamines or you know, opiates or booze for the next 20 years and just see how deep down the, the spiral I could get before I was you know, going to pull myself out. You know, I'm sure, okay, 
I'm sure there is a definitive moment for some people. They can say, oh, it was a car accident. But even a car accident or some trauma or some sexual abuse or something like that, even if there was like one big one that sort of triggered that desire within us, there was still many more steps that ultimately got us to that year mark, three-year mark, seven-year mark, 15-year mark, 22-year mark of addiction, right? So it's all these little things that add up, and I really do believe that Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, is really touching upon some of the most quintessential topics that we're not discussing enough. And so the one I want to bring to the show today is going to be scarcity, because when she talks about scarcity and the scarcity mindset, these are things that I have been talking about in my coaching with my clients. These are things I've been talking about on stage. These are the things I talk about in my workshops, um, on the podcast. I reference it, it, it to a great deal in the College Success Habits book. If you want to get a hold of that, just jump over to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and you can just Google College Success Habits. That will come up. And I mean, literally, I could have called this sobriety and recovery success habits. I could have called it life sex ha- success habits, not sex habits. Um, that'll be book number seven um, <laughs> or 69, if you will. Um, I could, I, you know, literally, if you can move past the fact that I frame um, the book around a, a high school or college or, you know, just anybody doing continuing education, if you can move past the fact that it's framed within that world and just start to draw some comparisons about how it works within your sobriety and recovery, this book and the seven principles therein will really uh, challenge you to, to, to step into a whole new version of yourself, just like Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, just like Mindset by Carol Dweck. I mean, when I bring these books up, it's because they fire me up so much that I can't not discuss the avenues that I am taking to get to this newer, better version of myself every single day. And when scarcity is something that literally overwhelms our culture, it has to start being talked about. You know, there's the scarcity mindset and there's the abundance mindset. And regardless of how you feel about those words, regardless of what your experience is with them or not, I know that because you've tuned into this show today, that you're open to a growth mindset orientation around what you're about ready to hear, because I don't think it's going to necessarily be groundbreaking, but it's certainly going to open up a whole new way of thinking about it in regards to sobriety and recovery. Because our culture is steeped in this scarcity mindset. And because it's steeped in the scarcity mindset, it, of course, is going to infiltrate into all of, the, all of the little societal subgroups that we create, whether we mean to or not, right? Whether it's a societal subgroup that is, you know, drinks too much or doesn't drink enough or, you know, okay, is that even a thing? Doesn't drink enough? Drinks too much or doesn't drink that much at all. Uh, perhaps it's, you know, the, the way that we feel about um, our finances, not having enough versus thinking we have enough, or our looks, or um, this fame culture that, that social media has made even worse than it already was when we were just looking at magazines at the grocery store and our obsession with celebrity, um, attention-seeking, um, personal rights versus community rights versus societal rights, um, political might, what political party you might be affiliated with, the level of intelligence that you think you have in comparison to somebody else. Uh, that maybe it's the size of your house, how many cars you have, the accessories you wear, the diet, vegans versus vegetarians versus c- carnivores, right? Like when we start to unwrap 
all of these little subgroups, ultimately what we'll end up finding is that there are going to be a heavy dose of scarcity around what we think about these things. Now, I know that Sue and I talked about this in episode 72 when we referenced what we were going to talk about during sober sessions, that um, oftentimes what we could perceive as problems, and again, never taking away anything you might feel about your life or your issues or your problems, right? Just because you know you are fretting about paying your mortgage on time and somebody else is you know, fretting about trying to overcome a physical abuse trauma doesn't mean that your problem isn't important to you. You're right. We're not doing a comparison like, oh, wow, you know, this, you know, your house burned down. My house is just dirty. Your problem's worse. I mean, if we're going to step outside of that, then of course, what that person is dealing through is way more traumatic, but your problems are still important to you, right? So we're never going to discount what problems that we each go through um, in regards to how they might be looked or perceived from the outside, Right, you know, I used to talk about this with my therapist. And I was like, "Well, you know, my dad, you know, yeah, he spanked me with the belt too much, and he used to grab my hair and pick me up off the floor by my hair, and it's still why I think I'm going bald." But you know, I had friends who were getting burned by cigarettes and beaten with the belt buckle end of a belt, and not just the leather end. And she'd say, "Look, I get that that's what was happening to them, but this is what happened to you, and it's important to you, and it's the trauma that's affecting you. So therefore, you have to work through years and not worry about how they're working through theirs. Right? They have to work through theirs, and they have to figure out what that looks like to them, and they might call upon you for some tips, tricks, hacks, advice, but it doesn't. Necess- but that, that's not your car to drive. That's theirs. And so I say all that, as I'm getting ready to reference that, a lot of the issues that we go through as a United States society are, in general, first world problems. When we think of the third world problems where a majority of their society lives in these little shanty towns like in India or in many of the countries in Africa and definitely in Brazil and Chile and Peru, you know, the... the I can start rattling off all the countries in Central America who are suffering financial problems, right? Like, those are some, I mean, Syria, think about the bombings that happened there and the people having to flee because their whole village got wiped out. So paying the mortgage versus you just watched your whole city get torn down is definitely first world versus third world problems. Um, and, And again, our problems are still important because they're happening to us. I have nothing overall I can do about Syria. The reason why I did that whole three minutes to start drawing some compare and contrast to what we deal with as a society versus what other societies have to deal with is that, and there's, here's the key bullet point in this whole five minutes. It is a blessing of the country that we live in. It is a blessing that we have so much as a country that even our very, very poorest have better than a substantial amount of the rest of the world's middle class, right? I mean, we got cell phones and, in, and indoor running water and plumbing and internet and televisions. And, you know, like 98% of households have some sort of media entertainment getting pumped into them, whether it's a TV or an internet or a smartphone. And there are countries where 15% of them don't even get the internet, right? And so we are blessed as a country to have what we have, this abundance. And because we are blessed to have this abundance, we can often see what we don't have 
versus what our next door neighbor might have. And then when we start to compare ourselves to that, because we see abundance all around us, we also see scarcity all around us. We see that we have the newest iPhone and our friends got iPhone 6 still. And we're like, what's up, bro? I mean, yeah, this thing's a thousand bucks, but you know, payment plan, it's only, tw- it's only $32 a month on your cell phone bill. Why, do, why are you still rolling with iPhone 6? I think Steve Jobs was still alive when that thing came out, right? So we see the scarcity happening in our lives. And we also begin to project what we believe is scarcity onto the other people around us not just our friends and inner circle and family members, but just people we might see driving by. Like, what's that dude got a crap car? <laughs> Person's got an old phone. Psh, what's that person wearing at Trader Joe's? Psh, what's that person ordering the cheap food for? Look at that person ordering the expensive bottle of wine. They must have tons of money, right? We start to project our definition of abundance and scarcity, not just upon ourselves, but then we start to do it towards everyone else around us. And when that begins to occur the judgment begins to occur. And when you start to pass judgment onto others, what you only leave yourself or that person up to trying to prove something. I'm judging you because you have your iPhone 6 out. Right now, either either you're going to have to do something to prove to me that you're not some you know poor vagrant vagabond, or you're going to have to say something that makes me realize that you're smarter than I am. So now maybe I'll see you on the same footing. And when we begin to do this compare and contrast, what what we're going to ultimately do is we're going to re- wedge differences between ourselves. We're going to begin to wedge differences between our loved ones and our friends and our partners and anyone that we deal with. Right? It's literally going to just happen so fast in our minds that we're not even going to be aware that it's happening. And like we've talked about many times on this show, it is the, it is not just being aware of these things that, you know, being aware that you judge somebody for the kind of shoes they're, they're wearing. That's good. You need to be aware that you're doing it. But most of the time we're just aware. Our awareness says that person's wearing stupid shoes. You know you notice the shoes because you just said it, whether it was out loud or in your mind. So your awareness that you're judging that person's shoes is full on. I ask that you step up to another level and you become aware of your awareness because it's within that awareness of your judging, pro or con, right? You might be pedestaling them or making them genuflect, you know, get, get, get down on one knee is what genuflect means. It was the word of it. It was my word of the year back in like 2012. So I love that genuflect, (laughs) get down on one knee. Um, right. So you're either pedestaling somebody or you're making them genuflect. And some of you might be like, did he really just say that he had a word of a year? And I'm like, yeah, that's a whole nother story. So you got, so pedestaling somebody or or putting telling somebody to get down on their knees neither are neither are good neither are appropriate right we step into a place where we realize that everybody has something different going on but we're all equals amongst this planet i know that sounds hard to 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 believe hard to turn into an identity uh, even harder to probably turn into an action of thought and feeling but it's really this is an nlp um, kind of thought processes here, you got to step into this idea that just because somebody else has something you don't, or just because you have something that somebody else does, doesn't have, doesn't make you better. 
zombie apocalypse goes down and electricity goes out and everybody's running around looking for baked beans to eat for dinner, you know, how fancy your car is or how fancy your shoes are, and it isn't really going to pay many dividends. So we have these first world problems that we that we have surrounded with ourselves, you know, not just the little my rent versus your town getting leveled, but really around scarcity and abundance. You know, because when you look at a, a, a town, you know, in Syria that just got leveled, you know, the, their thought isn't about their scarcity is do I have water today? But they're not judging whether they have more water than the next person. They're just hoping that they all find water. So our culture is steeped in this scarcity because we have so much. And because we have so much, we judge what we have versus what other people have. I've seen a seven and nine-year-old fight over a toy when their room is full of toys. Right? It's like, well, I would, this toy was sitting on the ground and no one was paying attention to it five minutes ago. Seven-year-old goes and picks up toy. Now nine-year-old wants to play with toy. Because, well, he's playing with it, so now I want to play with it. I mean, that's, but there's 87 other things to play with right now. Just go play with a different one. Play with it together. But don't run over and try to yank it out of that person's hand because you think you should have it. When you, five minutes ago before they picked it up, you didn't even care about it. It's so funny how many people I know loved staying home all the time until they were told that they couldn't go out anymore. And then all of a sudden going out became like, how dare you tell me not to? Scarcity, abundance. We live in a culture that allows this, right? And where does it start? Where, you know, I, I, before I even try to go on this whole philosophical of does it start at a young age, right? Whenever the baby cries and the baby wants a bottle and you don't get the bottle fast enough, it's scarcity and the baby thinks it's going to starve to death so it cries louder. Where does it start Every single day in your life. Because each day you have an opportunity to live anew. Like that Winnie the Pooh piglet meme that I've seen float around multiple times on Instagram. Where Winnie the Pooh says, you only live once. And piglet goes, no Pooh, you live every day. You only die once. So every day we wake up and we're born anew, a new day for making choices. I mean, you literally can just make a decision at night. I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to hit snooze anymore, or I'm going to do five push-ups before I before um, I go brush my teeth. You can literally start brand new habits just by choosing to every day. So where does the scarcity start every day? I would be willing to bet for a majority of us, it is the moment that we open our eyes. The moment we open our eyes and we hit snooze because we don't think we got enough sleep. And then because we've hit snooze too many times, now we're running a little bit late. And, and you know, then we wake up and it's like, I can't have my coffee. Uh, if I don't have my coffee, I can't wake up. And so now we got it in our heads. And trust me, I love me my coffee, right? Um, I've gotta have, oh my gosh, I feel dehydrated. I got to get some water in my body. There's a scarcity of water in my body. Must drink water immediately. Oh my goodness, I haven't had nicotine in eight hours. I got to hit my vape. I haven't looked at my phone in eight hours. I got to look at my phone. Uh, you know, I, I, it's cold in my room because the air conditioner is on. I better turn on the heater to warm it up. So there's a scarcity of warmth. I mean, it's like the moment we wake up, our thoughts, like literally the circumstance, and we've talked about this circumstance lead the thoughts, cause feelings, drive actions, create results. Literally, the moment we wake up, the neutral circumstance is, I woke up. I'm in bed. That's neutral. 
You literally just woke up, you're in bed. Then the thoughts of scarcity just start coming in. And they're so habituated to our morning routine that we don't even think about it. We literally just think, this is the way that I wake up. I wake up tired. I wake up thirsty. I wake up hungry. I I wake up craving for nicotine. I wake up craving for alcohol and drugs. I wake up craving for sex or for gambling. I wake up craving to go wake my kids up so that they can start their day because they better not make us late because my boss is getting tired of me being late. And the school school traffic drop-off line is it's way too long if I show up after 7.32. It's, we, it's so ingrained. And we got to stop that. We think we wake up late. We think we have too much to do. The traffic on the way to work. We don't have enough time. There's bills due. We don't have enough money for that. There's work overload. The, bo- the boss isn't giving me enough attention. The boss isn't praising me enough. The boss is praising me too little. It, 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 the boss is praising me too much. It's always like this scarcity abundance that's going on inside of us. Right? And then when I ask myself, well, why is that the overwhelming sensation, the overwhelming thought, feeling pattern that's happening to so many of us? And now we can start drawing comparisons to the shame, into our worthiness, into not feeling like we're whole, to not feeling that we're good enough. Right? I think about worthiness. You know, we begin to question, are, am I worry, worthy of all of these things that I desire for my life? Right? Like, you need water, food, warmth, and shelter. You want better water, food, warmth, and shelter. You also want, um, you know, connection. And you want th- these, these wants that we have as a society. Needs are literally, if you don't have them, you'll die. Once is like, okay, I've got my needs, water, warmth, food, and shelter lined up. Now what else do I desire, right? But most of us sit in this world where we think, well, I want a new computer. I want new shoes. Yes, using Merriam-Webster's definition of want, it is true. We do want. But the real word I would, I've been using for the last three and a half years, and I'd really encourage you to use, is desire. I desire a new life. I desire I desire better shoes or I desire a better computer. I desire a promotion. I desire more money. Right? Cuz what I what we want if we keep it's like oh I want more attention. I want then it just becomes ingrained and it becomes this scarcity. Whereas if I say desire, now I begin to to frame it around abundance. I want, want, want. I want, want, want. When you're a little kid, you want a candy bar. You want this. You want, you want, you want. Because you think that because you don't have it, that your life isn't complete. And that's a learned behavior by watching other adults, other kids, other people. Sort of, it gets in there. And it becomes this societal, cultural norm that is being trained into us at a very young age. And if you said, Jesse, great. Love your philosophy on all this. How are we going to change it? Boy, boy. (laughs) It's, It's per individual. And it's one day at a time. When you ask yourself, are you worthy, right? Are you worthy of what you desire? Can you achieve what you desire in your life, right? If you do achieve all of these things that you desire, will it really matter in the grand scheme of things? Right? We have this scarcity mindset. We want to step into an abundance mindset. And there's a there's a, a term called hedonic adapt, adaptation. Say that 10 times fast. Hedonic adaptation. You can Google it. Hedonic 
adaptation. And what hedonic adaptation circles around is the fact that when we acquire things that we have wanted and they are, they come from the physical world and they were and the reason we wanted them was to fulfill an egotistical and ego driven need hedonic adaptation states that over the course of time whether it be 1 minute or 100 days or 1000 days we will eventually get over that emotional spark that emotional bump that little serotonin dopamine hit we got off of buying those new pair of shoes it only lasts a certain amount of time how much time that is is going to be based off of each individual but the fact of the matter is is at some point we begin to just see that as an item we own and not remember how important it was at some point for us to attain that item for us to acquire that item to attain this level of status or stature this is how Michael Jordan wins one championship and then still wants more. Tiger Woods gets 14 of the things and still wants more. And that's not necessarily a horrible thing to have this hedonic adaptation going on inside of us because if you get one promotion and you say, well, that's it, I'm good, then you never strive for the next promotion. Where's that betterment in yourself? I read Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. That's great. I'm not done reading. That wasn't the last book. I just, now that I've learned that and I didn't even know that information existed, now I want to go find other awesome information that existed. So this hedonic adaptation isn't a negative or a positive. It's just neutral. It exists. And it's something you need to know that's going on inside of your head. If you wonder why you've been wanting that pint of ice cream and you went out and you got it and then you ate it and the next day you don't feel enthusiastic about it, right? You might even feel positive or negative emotions around it, but it's it's not like it was right as you were getting to sit down and finally that ice cream was there. It's because it's over with. Your excitement level was inevitably going to wane. I think about my Hyundai Santa Fe I bought on my third month of sobriety. I still love getting in that car. I still love cleaning the car. I still love owning that vehicle because when I bought it, I told myself that this was proof that I was worthy of better things in my life and I tied it toward my sobriety recovery. Because I'm sober and because I'm stepping into addiction recovery, I'm allowed to have a nice car because now I won't be drinking and driving in my car anymore and I don't have to worry about wrecking it into somebody or wrecking it in general and getting hurt and wasting you know $20,000 that I spent on this car because I got went off and got a DUI. I used to only let myself have old beat up cars because I didn't want to wreck a nice car. Well, now I was in sobriety. So now I'm a, and I had my old car was breaking down. It had to go. So instead of buying another old beater, I went out and bought a nicer car. Still didn't buy a brand new, fresh off the lot, six hundred dollar payment or none of that nonsense. I just went out and bought myself a really cool. You know, it was at the time it was three years old. It was from CarMax and it was good to go. But I t- because for me, I tied the ownership of that vehicle to my sobriety and recovery and that it was a reward for stepping into this new version of myself. When I get into that vehicle, it's, it represents my sobriety and recovery to me. And my sobriety and recovery is something that I still am, am proud to be a part of and proud to be on this journey, right? But still, hedonic adaptation says at some point, I will eventually get over it. Hopefully that's years to come, but at some point it will. 
right? And so when we're thinking about scarcity and abundance, start tying this new idea of hedonic adaptation that I've introduced you to, or perhaps you already knew about, that's absolutely positively possible. Um, The point being is that if you wonder why when you feel scarcity and then you go off and you buy something and you think that it's going to let you feel abundance, that after a certain amount of time, you go back to that, okay, well, I own that pair of shoes, but man, that pair of shoes looks super dope. Got to have that pair of shoes now. Oh, buy that. So you go off and buy them. Ah, a week later, ah, I got to have those, right? So is there a quintessential answer to overcoming scarcity and stepping into abundance? Is this just something that I can just say, okay, we'll do these three things. First and foremost, and this, this is directly from the Brene Brown book, it talks about the formula that gets us into this scarcity mindset. It's shame, comparison, and disengagement. All right? She goes on to say that scarcity bubbles up from these conditions and perpetuates them until a critical mass of people start making different choices and reshaping the smaller cultures they belong to. Okay? Scarcity bubbles up from these conditions, shame, comparison, and disengagement, and then perpetuates they get perpetuated by these people until a critical mass of, uh, of our subgroups start making these different choices and reshaping their culture based on this scarcity mindset, which again, shame, comparison, and disengagement. Shame, we all, we all have that to a certain extent about our using days. When we go into meetings and we say, you know, I'm Jesse and I'm an addict and, you know, oh God, I'm just such a piece of shit. You know, I've, my, my kids hate me. My wife hates me, right? Like that's shame that's coming out. It often gets shown to us in uh, via the emotion of anger because the emotion of anger is the most socially acceptable emotion to show in society when you're feeling something negative. You know, stepping into uh, vulnerability or shame or grief, um, jealousy, these other ones that are also negative. Um, when you start to display those, you know, some people might scoff at, oh, great, oh, you're so jealous of everybody. But when you start to throw out anger, because it's become and has been very socially acceptable for thousands of years to when something doesn't go your way, when someone says something that um, doesn't aligned with your belief system and your values to just get angry at them. So as a society, we're like, okay, we see somebody getting angry and maybe they're getting angry at the wrong time, the wrong place, the wrong space, but we can at least understand that we can at least understand anger. So when you have shame and you see society throwing it out as anger, right? If, if you just, now you know, oh, okay, wow. Well, they, when they're, when you see somebody angry, the really good question to ask yourself is what is it that they're really feeling on the inside? Because yes, what they're showing and displaying is anger, but what is it that they're really feeling? Right? This is such a great thing to do. I don't know if, if knowing the answer is going to help you at all if you're watching somebody freak out on a cashier over a mask, but what is it that they're really feeling? Because it's being thrown out as anger, but what is it that they're really feeling, right? Then you've got comparison. Comparison, compare and contrast, the old saying, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, if your neighbor buys an RV, you've got to own an RV. And if their kid gets A's, your kid has to get A's. Well, now we have this compare and contrast thing going on because of social media at a level that is just never has it been touched upon in society ever. 
You can literally be jealous of somebody in Zimbabwe um, or Borneo over uh, a flower in their front yard that you don't have. You would never have even known that existed had you not, you know, gone and looked at a travel magazine or been able to go to the library and check out pictures. The internet and social media has brought everybody's world straight into our front pocket or back pocket, if you will. So this compare and contrast is part of the formula for scarcity and then disengagement. Disengagement can be its own episode in itself, and it probably will be. Um, I'm I mean, it's just, it's part of my note-taking system. There's a whole thing on it. When disengagement occurs, you have people being becoming afraid to take risks or try new things to stay in their comfort zone. Um, you'll th- that's where shy comes into play, where people would rather stay quiet and not share their experiences, their thoughts, their ideas, their feelings, their stories, because they're afraid that it's going to be rejected or judged. And it's because somebody else is going to say, well, yeah, I went to that same place, but I got the most expensive steak. I got to go front of the line. or I got this, right? Now you start to judge your stories in your life based on this. Do Am I enough? Am I worthy? So I'm going to look at everybody else and try to judge, do I think what I've accomplished or done or experienced is better than them? Because if so, I'll tell them that story. But if I think that it's not, then I'm not going to tell that story. Or if I do tell the story, I'm going to fly through it in less than a minute and a half, leaving out crucial detail that would have really built the story up and allowed for an emotional crescendo that I felt deeply about. And I still do, or I wouldn't want to tell this story, but now nobody within the audience who's, who's hearing it will fully know what that meant to you. Because in the back of your head, you're, you're running it through the, is this enough? Am I enough? Everyone struggles to be seen and heard. Everyone struggles and suffers. It might be at a different time, it might be at a different level, but it's occurring. We start to feel, we start to feel unseen and unheard as children. Imagine back when society believed that children should be seen and not heard, right? And even when they were seen, they were just supposed to be shutting the hell up, sitting in a damn chair, not making a noise. And then we wonder why we have so many parents from you know back in the day raising emotionally unintelligent children, and now all of a sudden we're being thrust into this world where we're being expected to understand everybody's emotions and everybody's feelings, and we don't even understand our own because we weren't raised to fully embrace what it is we think and feel. We don't know how to talk about our emotions. We don't know how to be vulnerable. And we, we, we use vulnerability rather than embracing vulnerability because we don't even fully understand what being vulnerable means. Does it mean spewing out your worst, deepest, darkest, darkest secrets a day one of an AA meeting? Does it mean telling somebody you just met uh, something horribly embarrassing about yourself so that you level yourself down so that they understand that you're a hurt human who just wants to be seen and heard and, right, and it has emotions, Right? Because those things aren't necessarily going to work out every time you do them. Perhaps most of the time they won't. Because, again, other people are looking at your story and they're, and they're, giving it the, they're running it through the scarcity versus abundance mindset. And, again, I say abundance because I like to do the yin and yang here. But let's face it. Most people are just running things through the scarcity yeah, they're just running through the scarcity cauldron. They're just running through the scarcity lens. And when you're running things through the scarcity lens, you're going to judge it. Being aware of what we have talked about today is the first step into finding 
this inside yourself and journaling about it or talking about it at a meeting or jumping on the Facebook uh, from Sobriety to Recovery group and, and, and joining the conversation, whatever that looks like to you, that is the first step. I absolutely deal with scarcity on a regular basis. I will not buy expensive clothing or shoes or or accessories, but man, if there's another cool book, if there's another cool program, if there's another cool this, or something that will bring knowledge and ideas and increase my thoughts and raise raise me up, whatever that perception of being rose up looks like to me, boy, I'll buy it. Oh, this Eckhart Tolle program is only $300. It's going to teach me how to be rather than do. Oh, frick yeah, I want to get in on that. Oh, this program, it's only $97, and it's going to teach me how to manifest my dreams. And this one over here is going to teach me how to speed read. And this one over here is going to teach me how to overcome abandonment. And this one over here is going to teach me the five major questions I should be asking myself each day when I wake up. And this one over here is going to show me how to have a really great morning routine. And this one over here is going to give me the education I need to say I spent spent a lot of money at a college, and then I can prove to everybody that I'm smart, and I've got a degree. And this one over here is going to teach me how to be a better driver. It's like, I do this, and I see myself doing this, and I'm still compelled to buy more. And people who do that and then don't do the programs, are they're acquiring shelf help. And don't acquire shelf help. If you buy College Success Habits, read it. If you buy Daring Greatly, read it. If you download the podcast, read it. If you open up Facebook and you want to talk about scarcity, go over to the From Sobriety to Recovery group and talk about it. The first step in figuring out where scarcity is controlling you, where shame and comparison and disengagement are an underlying current in your life, is by sitting down and asking yourself, where do I have scarcity? What, is, what, are, what are the first five thoughts I have in the morning? If you know you don't want your first five thoughts to be, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I'm late, I'm tired, uh, I got to get my kids up, all five scarcity thoughts, then decide to have new thoughts. Write down five things you would rather think of, and the moment you hit the alarm, reach over, grab the paper, and read those five things. They have now become the first five thoughts that you've had for the day. And if your brain starts trying to argue with you about what you just wrote and how ridiculous it is, tell your brain to shut the hell up. Thank you, thought. You're a waste of my time. If somebody walked into your bedroom after you just got done reading five awesome things that you wanted to think when you first woke up and looked at you and said, whatever you're reading is stupid. You're, you're hungry and you're tired and you're late and you're thirsty and your kids are failing school. You're a loser. If somebody said that to you, what would your response be? Might be get up and throw a glass of water in their face. The water, not the glass. So don't let that person in your head talk to you like that. Promise me you'll think about doing this. Promise me that you'll at least legitimately write five awesome thoughts that you would like to have in the morning and then just put it next to your bed. And if it takes you the next morning or 50 mornings until you finally pick it up and read it, at least you're taking a step. If you promise to do that, I will promise to do that with you. I will promise to go down this journey with you and I will talk about it at tomorrow's sober sessions. I will bring it up in the Facebook group. I will be a part of this with you because I have this issue too. 
I've told you this before, I am by no means perfect, but each day I am looking to up-level myself. Join me on this journey. There are plenty of spaces available on this bandwagon. There is enough room in this universe for everyone to succeed. This does not have to be about the one percenters versus the 99 percenters. This does not have to be politically affiliated. This does not have to be sexualized. This does not have to be race-oriented. There needs to be a decision by the masses to realize that there is enough for everyone to succeed. Let's get on board. Write out your five new thoughts. Put them next to your bed. and We're going to talk about it next week. I love you all. Be super dope. Be super awesome. Be just splendid. Jump on the Facebook page. Jump on the Facebook group. Um, Ask to join. I'll get over there. I'll let you in. And let's have this conversation. I would love to know what five awesome thoughts you would like to think of first thing in the morning. All right. Until we meet again, the power of positive energy. Release and flow. Inclusivity over exclusivity. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Or for some of you, I'll see you tomorrow night. Peace. 